Support for this podcast and the following message come from Dignity Memorial. When your celebration of life is prepaid today, your family is protected tomorrow. Planning ahead is truly one of the best gifts you can give your family. For additional information, visit DignityMemorial.com. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My next guest, Betty Levette, isn't Diana Ross. I mean, both of them are R&B singers from Detroit. They were both born around the same time. They both cut records for Motown. They're both incredibly talented. But that's about where the similarities end. We could start with Betty's voice. It is commanding and desperate and beautiful all at once. Like a sort of Tina Turner, Screamin' Jay Hawkins level of intensity. And of course, there is the obvious difference between Betty Lovett and Diana Ross. The odds are, this is the first time you've heard Betty Lovett's name. Betty is a working singer. She has recorded dozens of albums on Atlantic, on Motown, Epic, Verve. A few of those records charted. Nothing was an outright smash. More recently, though, the tenor of her career has changed. Since the early 2000s, she's released a series of eclectic and inspired albums. She's recorded her take on songs by Bob Dylan, Dolly Parton, Fiona Apple, and Led Zeppelin. Her 2008 record, The Scene of the Crime, earned her a Grammy nomination. Her latest record is called Lavette. That's with an exclamation mark at the end. It's an album of music written by Randall Bramblett, a solo and session musician who's worked with Bonnie Raitt, Greg Allman, and Steve Winwood, among many others. We'll kick things off with a song from that album in just a moment, but before we do, one quick note. Uh, Betty's husband, Kevin Kiley, sat in on the conversation. He's also sort of like her unofficial historian. You'll hear his voice come up a couple of times. Nice guy. Okay, like I said, here's a track from Lavette. This is Hard to Be a Human. Functions. That's what makes me act so strange. I'm just another life form that ain't ever gonna change. I was walking in the garden, going by the plant, dreaming about my baby. Betty Levette, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be with you. When that record came on, when I was listening to the album, I was like, wait, Betty Lavette's making Afrobeat records now? 
Did it make you dance? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I was sitting in my desk chair, so it was some desk chair dancing. But That's it. I did it on stage the other night on a stool, and I still danced. <laughs> when you do that, when you do that song on stage, do you have to have a do you have to have a full horn section with you? No, I'm I'm looking forward to that. I wish I could afford a full horn section, but I'm just doing it with rhythm. But since it's so rhythm based, uh, the on the recording, the horns just make it off the hook. But um, <laughs> but the rhythm, you know, and I'm there. The rhythm's there. So, <laughs> did you have a goal with this record? No more than any of the rest of them. I. I like the songs. I'm pleased with the recording. Now let's see what they say. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you when you cut an album of, you know, Bob Dylan songs, well, it's obvious uh, there's this whole audience for Bob Dylan anything. And it's a great story because you're very different from Bob Dylan and have an interesting perspective on those songs and so on and so forth. How did you come to cut a record of songs by Randall Bramblett, a man that, before I started reading about this album, I was not familiar with? Um, my producer, Steve Jordan, afforded me the luxury of teaming up with someone else who had had as many flop records as I have <laughs> but who had really, really good songs. And they tell me my voice is pretty decent. So this is the only person I could get to try it. With all the other record companies and whatever, they had to be this idea. And it was their money because I swear I wouldn't spend a dime in this industry other than on uh, whatever Betty the Bet needs. But um, I, you know, to be able to be fortunate enough at this point to find somebody who had enough faith in me to want to do this kind of thing. We went to Randall Bramblett's own record company. <laughs> they wouldn't do it. <laughs> I like the idea that uh, they tell you you can sing a little bit. Well, I don't know. I was around when he came, spending other people's money. And I... <laughs> And that, you know, that right there, as difficult as my career has been, that's kind of a feather in my bonnet for me that I really, someone is, all, maybe not as often as I needed them to, but it's always been somebody who has offered to spend their money. I've never asked anyone to spend anything. You never had a straight job either. No, as cute as I am. Are you joking? <laughs> no, I, you know, it's, my manager told me early on, he said, if you'll learn how to sing a lot of songs and learn to sing them really well, you may never become a star, but you should be able to make a living singing for the rest of your life. We didn't know it was going to take the rest of my life <laughs> or to make a living, but... But that's pretty much true, and and you know as as the time goes by, I'm pretty, I'm pretty emphatic about it now. If this wasn't happening, and you had a gig for a hundred dollars a night, I take it. When you say 
starting out when you were very young. You're not playing. I mean, you put out your first single or cut your first single when you were 16. Right. I had never stood before a microphone before in my life, before I stood before a microphone before that. Did people expect you to sing a certain kind of way? I mean, did they did they want you to be either that kind of I mean there's there was that kind of like uh and still is that kind of you won't believe this person is a teenager lane. Mm-hmm. But the biggest lane was you know kind of like uh like Carla Thomas or something. A a a young person that really sounds like a sounds like a teenager. And you weren't that. Was there some expectation of what you were going to be? Oh, I was, you don't know how many years I was disappointed that I didn't sound like the Shirelles or any girl. <laughs> and I that I really took that to heart and it caused me a lot of misery. And the same manager who made the artist you see before you today, he said, just sing the song the way you sing. And I said, but I don't sing any kind of way. I mean, I didn't. I had never, I'd only been singing a little bitty while. And my my family, the, we had a jukebox in our living room. My family sold corn liquor. They never went out to nightclubs. I never saw a show until I was the show. And uh, But I knew all the songs on the jukebox. And the people that came to our house loved to see me dance and sing. But I never thought that it was something. I didn't know anyone else who did that. So certainly no one in Muskegon, Michigan. And when we got to Detroit, we hadn't gotten to the area where we eventually wound up with me across the street from, uh, uh, across the alley from uh, Smokey Robinson and Aretha Franklin being across the street from him and Lil Willie John and Jackie Wilson living on the boulevard that went along our houses. But I was singing then almost, you know, so I, it it didn't, um, I didn't have any early influences as people people who were really in show business. Well, let's listen to a little bit of your single from 1962, My Man, He's a Loving Man. You mentioned growing up in Detroit, living near Jackie Wilson, Little Willie John. I mean, nobody ripped a microphone like Little Willie John. And certainly (laughs) Jackie Wilson, Jackie Wilson did the same. Mm -hmm. Did you grow up thinking that being a singer was being able to, you know, burn the house down? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But I didn't know how how to do it. I didn't know. It was a long time before I learned about me. 
And it's very, very difficult to be just like somebody else. And I'm just so glad that I had someone pulling on my my coat tail and telling me, no, do just sing it, just sing it the way you would sing it. And getting me to get comfortable with that, that was hard to do because I knew I didn't sound like any of the people I liked. And that's what you want to do when you're a kid, be like the people you like. <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of musicians especially, but all, all kinds of artists, they find who they are by failing at pretending to be someone else. I mean, you know, Paul McCartney was never going to be Chuck Berry. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, I it, it wasn't that. Immediately, people saw who I could be. And I'm grateful for that because I did not see it for a long time. But immediately, I started singing within a, a month of trying. <laughs> you know, and I was with the people I was going to be with all that whole month of learning as rapidly as I could from from them. But my um, everything that you would go through at the very beginning, I had to go through after I had had a record in the charts. <laughs> but you're going to go through it. I don't care whether you do it at the beginning, at the middle, or at the end. You're going to go through it. Did you think you were going to be a pop singer? Um, no, I thought I, I, I knew early on that I'm a rhythm and blues singer. I, I um, didn't learn until later that I didn't have to necessarily sing rhythm and blues songs. And once again, Jim would lock me in the room, make me learn songs, which I hated. I was like 18, 19. I wanted to sing what all my contemporaries were singing. But um, he made me learn like Sweet Georgia Brown, which later on got me the lead role in a Tony Award-winning Broadway play. <laughs> so... But at the time, I could not see where I'd ever need Sweet George Brown or God Bless the Child or It Don't Mean a Thing If It Ain't at That Swing. But he was from that era. He made me learn all of those tunes. He would get me these boring gigs where I would sit, white stand with, with a keyboard player and sing, One Day You'll Come Along. And I was like, Oh, I'm, I want to go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> But I just had uh, the opportunity to do one of those songs as well with the Count Basie Orchestra at the Hollywood Bowl. I mean, when you were a kid and a teenager in, De in Detroit and a young adult was like the absolute greatest time in the music industry to live in and be from Detroit in that, you know, particularly Motown was the biggest thing in the world. But it also didn't fit what you did as no. a singer, especially as a woman. Like, you know, Le Levi Stubbs was allowed to sing that way in The Four Tops. But, <laughs> you know, you didn't sing like Diana Ross. I, I, there, there are myriad reasons why I was not with Motown, but you do know I did have one album with him eventually. And I knew 80s, where yeah. Barry Gordy came from, and I knew he knew I could sing. I really was not doing exactly what he wanted to hear. And you have to remember when My Man came out, it was on Atlantic, and that was the biggest rhythm and blues company in the world. And that red and black label had meant more in my life and in my upbringing and on the jukebox than Motown. So Motown was not something I was after. 
have to run till I got broke. But I was with the biggest company in the world. Why would I want to be with Motown? My man was a top 10 R&B hit. Mm-hmm. And you were off Atlantic not all that long after. Mm-hmm. Um, you cut another single that didn't make it to the R&B chart. What happened? Did they just lose interest? Oh, I don't even Did you? remember. No, I didn't lose interest. I didn't know I'd only been singing a, a year or two. I didn't know what had happened. I knew I should go to New York, and that was a stupid move. But I went to New York, and um, I still did not want to be with Motown. I, I had been to New York then, and I had been on Atlantic, and I had traveled with all the stars of, of um, who were at Atlantic, who were the idols of all of us in Detroit at that time. Of course, just a year later, Motown started to burgeon. But um, when I came to New York, I came to be produced by Lieber and Stoller. And Jerry Wexler told me they were gone. And I was, I didn't I didn't know anybody else. And Jerry said, why don't you stay? He said, we're talking to some new young producers. And at this point, Lieber and Stoller was it for me. And he said, we have, we're working with a young man whose name is Bert Baccarat. And I didn't know who. He had done Walk On By, they told me, and I didn't like Walk On By for me. And so that wasn't interesting to me. But then uh, Let Me Down Easy happened, which uh, to date is the biggest record I've ever had by virtue of the fact that it is repeatedly sold for 50 years. Take the example of Let Me Down Easy. It's a great record. It went halfway up the R&B chart, peaked at number 20. You cut, I'm looking at the discography, so it might not be perfect, but another four records for that record company, of which two came out and they didn't chart. And that was in the course of that, basically a year. Where were you at then? I was still looking for me. I was still looking for me. Because up until then, every time something stopped, I stopped. Because I didn't know anything else to do, or I didn't know enough things to do to sustain until something else happened. But after I learned that, I was working. That's why when people say resurgence, I said I was working the week before this resurgence started. Y'all just didn't come to where I was working. (laughs) 
We've got to go for a quick break. When we come back, more with Betty Lavette. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit TeladocHealth.com slash What's Your Why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C Health slash What's Your Why. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. The Capital One Venture X business card has no preset spending limit, so the card's purchasing power can adapt to meet business needs. Plus, the card earns unlimited double miles on every purchase, so the more a business spends, the more miles earned. And when traveling, the Venture X business card grants access to over 1,300 airport lounges. The Venture X business card. What's in your wallet? Terms and conditions apply. Find out more at CapitalOne.com slash VentureXBusiness. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Betty Lavette. She's a Grammy-nominated soul singer who's been in the game for over 60 years. She has recorded hundreds of songs and is still going strong today. Her latest album is called Lavette. Here's a song from it, Plan B. Same old words, the same old song I'm looking for a friend who used to live up here I can still hear her voice even though she's disappeared I'm dangling by a string, mumbling a prayer My mojo's busted and I ain't got a spare You had started so early that you were still a teenager when... Let Me Down Easy came out and you know you were you were still a teen like by the time you got onto the charts again in the late 60s you were still in your early 20s thank goodness <laughs> if I had been this age I'd be dead now with all they put me through <laughs> <laughs> but I mean not just that but like uh, I think you were still, maybe you were still young enough to be foolish enough to think that you should stick with it. You know what I mean? Like if you were 28 and that had happened, you might've just said, well, gosh, I should just go be a supper club singer or get a job as a, you know, office administrator or something. No, well, I went and got a job as a supper club singer, but the office administrator, that was out. Have you listened to the words to Lazy? <laughs> I don't even tell people I'm going to come to work because I know I'm not going to show up on time or every time or all every day because I don't like it. And then I'm not going to do what they tell me to do. 
So this really is the only thing I can do. And it's the only thing I can do this proficiently. If I were an office administrator, I'd want to be good enough to take over the company. And I, I'm not a good worker. So I have to wear the red dress and hold my arms up in the air. <laughs> Whether it's at General Motors or on the stage. <laughs> Your folks entertained in their house. They had a sort of um, a sort of after-hours club type situation going on. Um, I imagine everybody that came in there, it being Detroit, was going to work in the morning. You know, it was, it was a well plant town. Let me just tell you this: it wasn't in Detroit. It was in Muskegon, where I was born. Nobody could go anywhere but to work because it was during segregation. If they wanted a drink after work, they had to come to my house. If you were not married, my mother cooked every day as well as work and made barbecue sandwiches and chicken sandwiches. You couldn't come there after hours because they all had to go to work. And they all went hungover or not, just the way they did in the cotton fields. Nobody could cuss but my mother, and she did proficiently and taught me how to do it as well. And you could not come there with a girlfriend unless she was your known girlfriend. You couldn't pick up some woman and bring her there. And you couldn't be married and come there with another woman. So it wasn't an after-hours place. It was the only place that blacks could go. Was it the place that folks went when they were coming through on tour? Yes, but the bigger ones, of course, were afforded um, a a few more luxuries. But the gospel singers um, all came there because they, they... Gospel hadn't, of course, wasn't as big then, and there weren't as many people. It was mostly being done in churches. It wasn't uh, concerts, more or less. They called them singings. And they would come uh, to my house. Uh, all gospel singers drank. Any any of them who didn't in 1940-whatever, please, if they call you, give them my number so I can call, so I can tell them when they were drunk at my mother's house. But um, they all drank, and anytime you get entertainers drunk, they're going to sing. So they'd all sing, and I'd hear them all, and I'd learn the songs. And uh, so my my life has always been kind of unusual. Who do you remember singing? I remember the Blind Boys most because, Blind Boys of Mississippi, because, of course, they were blind. So that stuck out to me more as an 18-month-old child. 
And um, I was a little afraid of them because they all had on the sunglasses. And I remember, um, I don't remember Sam as much because my mother loved blind boys and I loved who she loved. But my sister was a teenager and she was in love with Sam. And when he first joined the group, that's where the group came every time they came to Muskegon. So when he joined them, that's where he came to. And when you say Sam, you're talking about Sam Cooke. Yes. I mean, I think everybody was in love with Sam Cooke at the time. Uh, That's the impression I got. Well, not at this time because they hadn't heard of him. He had only been with the Soulsters briefly. He was, my sister was maybe turning 16 and he had to be turning 20, maybe. Was it hard in the early and mid-60s to see people that you knew, people you'd toured with, people, heck, people who are, you know, from down the street, practically speaking, sometimes literally speaking, um, become major stars and you were working in the trenches still? Oh, I'm pretty sure it liked to kill me about 17 times. <laughs> For sure. Absolutely. I mean, and then think about how it got to be when, like, I for a long while, like I say, well, me and the OJs and the Spinners are real good, and we just haven't, it hasn't happened yet. So then it happened with the OJs. So <laughs> then me and the Spinners who hung out in the same place, we sure said, well, having the OJs, it can happen to us. And then it didn't happen, and then it didn't happen, and then it didn't happen. And then finally, it was the spinners. <laughs> but those were my closest friends in in show business, and uh, probably by virtue of the fact that we were the last people to even be recognized. I'm winning by default now. Y'all just ain't got nobody else to talk to. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I had oh, I had Smokey on the show a few weeks ago, so uh, you're in good company. You're not sweating it. <laughs> uh. You cut an album in the at the end of the '60s, right? Beginning of the '70s, '69, '70, something like that. That <laughs> okay, I'm looking good. at Kevin because Kevin is my brain at this point. <laughs> yeah, that's your that's your husband, who's a record nerd. Yes. <laughs> I resent that. <laughs> <laughs> when when I saw her husband as an antique dealer and and record dealer, I was like, "Oh yeah, I I get this guy. <laughs> I know about I know about that dude." 
I say it with fond regard and uh, deep admiration, and more than more than a little identification. <laughs> but you, you cut a record at the at the end of the '60s, an album that never came out. You had not recorded an album to that point. You had put out a lot of singles, and right. you, you know the album era was sort of rolling. And this was going to be your introduction to the album era. Where did you get that record? In Muscle Shows. But it, um, had I done the other one first? The first album that didn't come out. Yeah, the first first album album that didn't didn't come come out out was for uh, Silver Fox. And um, that was because uh, Leland and Shelby Singleton fell all apart and the company fell apart and whatever. But then we did the one in Muscle Shows. And child, I thought, okay, I got Brad Shapiro, Wilson Pickett's producer. I got the Swampers, who at the time were not called that. But <laughs> but they had done everything with everybody, every record that I liked, every record that I wished was mine. And I, I am back with Atlantic. Everything is perfect. When they called me and told me that they were not going to release the album, I just got under the dining room table and stayed there for several days and and just drank wine and smoked joints. (laughs) What did they tell you when they told you? That they decided not to go forward with the project. Those were their exact words. And I left it at that. Oh, and they said, oh, and would you send the plane tickets back? Because they had already put a promotion to it together, and I had a stack of plane tickets. Uh, so it was years, 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 and years before I found out what happened with that. But I was able to use it as this great mystique, because the people in Europe loved the story and loved uh, Your Turn to Cry, I think, was the only thing that came off of it, and... Uh, then it did come out. So did the one from SSS International and everything else I've ever recorded. <laughs> and I got a chance to pay every back, everybody back. You know, I owe, like, as I told you, I do not spend a dime. First thing I do is borrow some money. So I owed everyone that you've ever heard of me recording for because I didn't sell any records. But in these 20 years, 25 years, I've uh, sold some now. So now I'm getting the first wealthy checks I've ever gotten in my life. Did you think about quitting when that happened? I thought about quitting every time it happened. But now, I mean, it's, you know, it. there's only so much quitting I could do now. I probably will sing as long as I can sing. Because there's somebody, there are enough people to call for the rest of my life. I don't know how often they'll be calling unless something really huge happens, but I know that somebody will be calling for the rest of my life. And the older I get, the more of an anomaly I become. So soon I'll be just fun to look at. (laughs) We'll wrap up my conversation with Betty Lovett in just a minute. How does she choose the songs she wants to record? What makes her know something's going to be great? We'll talk about it after the break. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. 
This message comes from NPR sponsor Xfinity. Everything's changing so fast these days, but now there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet with faster speeds rolling out every day. And internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement while another TikToks in the kitchen. The next generation Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. It's the final week of Co-Optober. I'm Richard Roby, producer, and I'm here with... KT Wigman, operations specialist. To cap off National Co-op Month, we're sharing how worker-owned co-ops can benefit their communities. Read about it in our newsletter or on social media at MaxFunHQ. We're also trying to do our part. We're volunteering at our local food bank this week, and we encourage you to volunteer in your area, too. On Friday, we're announcing the donation that you helped raise in the Post-Max Fund Drive sticker sale, going to five food banks across the U.S., And we want to make sure that you know this is your last chance to get our limited edition Launch Crew merch. Grab a pin, hat, shirt, or hoodie before they disappear at the end of the month. Details on merch, resources for volunteering, and all things Co-Optober can be found at MaximumFun.org slash Co-Optober. That's C-O-O-P-T-O-B-E-R. Thank you so much for your support and a great Co-Optober. I'm Jesse Thorne. You're listening to Bullseye. My guest is the Grammy-nominated singer Betty LeVette. What's great about this career that you've had is that because you never actually did quit, and because of your talent and and charm, <laughs> like you got another chance after all of these things. You know, like if if. I look down your discography that's sitting right in front of me from 1962 to 1982, you know, 20 years, you were cutting records the whole time. What did I tell you Jim told me? If you will learn songs and learn how to sing them real good, you may never become a star, but you will be able to sing for the rest of your life. But I mean, he might have just meant that you could that you could go work at a nightclub. You know what I mean? (laughs) Well, whatever he meant. I mean, I've been able to take what he taught me and do more things with it maybe than he even imagined. But basically what he said is is true. And I'm constantly being asked to do something else. Or these people, look at these little children, uh, Odessa, who just got 180 million views on their first outing of Let Me Down Easy. 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 I mean, you have, you had records on the charts in the mid-70s. Why do you sound so stunned? I mean, you it's great. Like, it's cool. But you sound like, I can't believe this. <laughs> Look, you have, a, you have a signature hit in Let Me Down Easy from 1965. As you said, this is the song you've been doing your whole career. This song was number 20 R&B. 
You know, this 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 wasn't a number one pop record. You know what I mean? It's an exceptionally great song, and that's why it's lived so long and thrived. And now it's been an electronics pop music number one record. <laughs> when you pass by me, say hello once in a while. When you pass by me, baby, You have never stopped having successes, despite never having had a, you know, extraordinary crowning success of the kind that, like, sets you up for life. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm extremely disappointed that I haven't. But I'm extremely <laughs> proud of myself and what I've learned and what I've been able to do and what I can still do. Um, I, I really, really am trying very hard to celebrate what I have right now, the most extraordinary thing is I've been opening my show with while we're promoting this new album. I say I'm the oldest female in show business with the new album, and the people start to applaud. I said, no, wait a minute. So with a new album that I did not pay for. And so then they'll applaud again. I say, now, if you should hear something on Dolly Parton or Beyonce in the next few days, they paid for it because they can. I can't, but somebody's willing to. So I'm I'm grateful. I'm I'm really grateful, and I'm proud at 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 um. At the fact that I've been able to sustain, I've been able to do a good job. And as I said, I can, if you have a job for $100 a night, I'll take it. <laughs> I can t- I can take your gig. All I have to do is see what you're doing and see what they like, and I'll take it. Where in all this do you think that you figured out who you were? Oh, I started to figure out who I was um, uh, as a singer during uh, uh, the period of Bubbling Brown Sugar because I didn't know how many things I could do. I thought I could only sing little songs in little places, even if, you know, if I got to be a really big rhythm and blues star, still just in little places. But when I saw I walk out on this auditorium stage in extremely high heel shoes, and then the whole Cab Calloway's hand, a tap dance. I said, well, I'm... <laughs> I started to look at, well, what else can you do? <laughs> I mean, you're talking about the late 70s. Mm-hmm. If you're talking about Bubbling Brown Sugar when you, when you were on Broadway, yep. you're not talking about 1966, four years into your career. You're talking about f- 15 years in. Yeah, I was. They tell people it took me fifteen years to learn to sing, to learn to be in complete possession of my voice, and the song, uh, and the show, the whole thing. It always had me, and I was trying to live up to it and make sure I didn't get hoarse, and make sure that I could do this. Now, if I'm hoarse, you hear me sing the song, hoarse. <laughs> I look familiar 
Betty, I've been very careful not to make this uh, interview a list of names of people you've known and worked with and just the question, hey, what was that person like? But (laughs) as soon as you said walking out on stage and holding hands with Cab Calloway, I feel like I can't let that one pass (laughs) and not ask the stupid question, hey, Cab Calloway, what was that guy like? Well, he he was a cantankerous old man. I'm getting to be very much like him, in fact. But he he didn't like any of the young people on the show because he just didn't like the attitude of the young people in show business at that time. And it was so different. Just like me, I don't like their attitudes either. I came from a different time it was taught a different thing and I didn't get into it expecting that I would have a million dollars at the end of the week but he um I always rode with him because he always wore an ascot or a sports shirt and jacket and I always wore some light makeup or something nice and everybody else in the show wore rollers in their hair and slippers and he didn't like that at all so I would ride with him and hear all the stories about the show business that I got in show business to be in. But it was over when I got into it. But hearing stories about Lena Horne and about uh, Duke Ellington and trials and tribulations he and Duke Ellington had about their hair and whose hair was naturally straighter. And, <laughs> and I just loved to talk to him. And then, too... I could jump out of the car and go in and put in his bets at the OTB machines, which were all over New York. We were traveling on um, in the New England states, but he treated he treated me like a child, <laughs> <laughs> and he gave me away at my wedding. I the second wedding, I got married on stage between shows, and all the dancers in the show danced for me, and he gave me away. <laughs> what sounds like a Betty Levette song to you? I don't know what you mean. Well, you have a wide repertoire, and especially, you know, the last 20 years as you have been cutting albums that are, you know, often themed. Not a lot of soul singers are out here cutting Fiona Apple songs. You know what I mean? So when you hear a song, let's say Kevin sends you an MP3 file or a YouTube link or whatever, um, or puts a 45 on the, on the turntable. What is it in there that makes you think, oh, that's one that I should do? Oh, I just like it. Um, when you hear songs, you buy them. When I hear them, I sing them. If, you, if I like them, I sing them. But it's the same motivation that one uses to buy a recording. You know, I would imagine. I I don't, um, it, it's so many different things. I guess melodies I'm drawn to uh, more than anything else, which is how I'm, I'm, I probably will never become 
a hip-hop artist or whatever, you must be able to hum it in the shower or whistle it. And if you can't, it is not a song as far as I'm concerned. But I, uh, Randall Bramble had asked me, he said, do the songs all have to be about you? I said, yep. <laughs> and they are. And, and, and in this new album, some of them are funny, some of them are sad, some of them are danceable, some of them are revelatory, but um, they're all how I feel and what I would have said if I could write. Well, Betty Levette, I sure am grateful for your time and, and for your records as well. Well, it's your time too, honey, and I appreciate you wanting to spend some of it with me. Betty Levette, her new album, Levette, is wonderful. We'll go out on one more song from that record. This one has John Mayer on it. It's called In the Meantime. There's a great big old hole in this world of mine. I'm doing my best to fill it But I just can't seem to drink enough of that champagne wine That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Although... I was actually on tour this past week with Judge John Hodgman. Had a great time all over town. Hope everybody will come out on our East Coast swing that's just about to happen. But I will say the coolest thing I did was go to the Driehaus Museum in Chicago, uh, which is just a totally incredible aesthetic movement Victorian house that is just absolutely bonkers. It's right there in downtown Chicago. I had never heard of it. It was so cool. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellow at Maximum Fun is Brianna Paz. We get booking help from Merritt Davis. Special thanks to Tony Caven and the NPR legal team for confirming that we can say Ask Rail as an anagram for Ira Glass on NPR. Our interstitial music is by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Our theme song is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Thanks to The Go Team. Thanks to their label, Memphis Industries. Bullseye is on Instagram at Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. I am on Instagram at put.this.on. Follow us there. But I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Xfinity. Everything is changing so fast, but now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. At this year's Oscars, Oppenheimer took home the award for Best Picture, Emma Stone and Robert Downey Jr. also picked up wins, and Ryan Gosling brought the Kennergy. For a recap of all the highlights, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR.